Welcome to another midweek edition of Writers Festival Radio. My name is Sean Wilson. I'm the Artistic Director of the Ottawa International Writers Festival, and I'm your host. We are broadcasting from the unceded and unsurrendered territory of the Algonquin Anishinaabe, and it gives me great pleasure to welcome you to the podcast. Special thanks to the Ottawa Public Library and Library and Archives Canada for their collaboration in our virtual season. It's all available online at writersfestival.org, and all you need to do to connect with some of the world's most acclaimed authors is click play. Please consider making a donation to support our virtual programming, as it may be a long while before we are able to gather again in person. We wanted to take a moment to say thanks to Court, Ottawa's Queer Arts Collective, for their important work in our community. Hello, I'm Glenn Nuatio, and I'm co-founder and one of the members of QUART, Ottawa Queer Arts Collective. Our first ever event in 2018 was at the Ottawa International Writers' Festival, and we remain grateful for this continued support. As a collective of artists and community advisors, we boost local queer creativity and find opportunities for 2S LGBTQ artists and audiences to connect with each other. We also work alongside equity-seeking arts groups to help underrepresented voices find new stages or create new spotlights. It's an honor anytime Quart can be connected to any new release or event from Arsenal Pulp Press. These essays by Andrea Bennett and the poetry of John Elizabeth Stinsey are important voices that broaden the conversation and our perspective and place in the world. You can find Quart Queer Arts Collective on Facebook, Quart Ottawa, and Twitter or Instagram. Please look for us as we make plans for 2021, and please do contact us anytime to let us know how you are queering your own city or arts organization and what you would like to help see happen. Thanks again to Arsenal Pulp Press and to the Ottawa International Writers Festival for today. Thanks, Glenn. Today, we'll be listening in on a conversation between two authors celebrated for their poetry and prose. Rather than stick with our usual format, we asked John Elizabeth Stinsey and Andrea Bennett if they'd be comfortable interviewing each other about their latest books and their process. We're thrilled they were open to the idea. Andrea Bennett is a national magazine award-winning writer and editor. Their writing has been published by The Atlantic, The Globe and Mail, Walrus, Maisonneuve, and Chatelaine. An editor and designer at Talon Books, the former editor-in-chief of Maisonneuve, and the designer for Prism International, Andrea's debut poetry collection, Canoodlers, came out in 2014, and their first book of essays, Like a Boy, But Not a Boy, is out now. John Elizabeth Stinsey is a non-binary Canadian-American novelist and poet and winner of the 2019 RBC Bronwyn Wallace Award for Emerging Writers from the Writers' Trust of Canada. This year, they published two acclaimed books, June Bat, a poetry collection grappling with the pain of uncertainty on the path toward becoming, and Vanishing Monuments, a novel whose lead character returns home to the long-estranged mother who is now suffering from dementia. Here's their conversation. I was thinking we could start by sort of checking in on how we're doing. Um, of all of the events that I'm set to do this fall, this has been one of the ones I've been looking forward to the most. Yeah, me too. Um, that being said, it's like a really weird year. It's a really weird year and it's a really weird year to be releasing a book and like there's a global pandemic still currently going on. Otherwise, I think we'd probably both be in Ottawa. Um, uh, there's like an epidemic of police violence. And then I don't know if the wildfires affect you at all, but over here on the West coast, we get these like rolling billows 
of wildfire smoke that arrive and then stay for a few days. Yeah, no, we don't got any of that. And, I don't yeah. think the wind is the, coming in this direction. So how are things been going for you? How do you, you have two books out this year. So, um, not recommended. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> but also how does it feel to have them come out this year? I mean, I don't know. It's hard to know what it's the the most obnoxious thing about it is that I don't know like what is my reaction to having books out and what is my reaction to having books out during a pandemic. It's like, is my like, you know, emotional, you know, weirdness just like because I have books out now and it's just, I don't know. It's it's hard to really gauge what is what is 2020 and what is just John problems. So it'll be interesting to see down the road, but you know, I think I'm, you know, I'm in a boat with a great many people. So it's not like I'm by myself and the only person that has published too many books in 2020. So, you know, I feel there's nothing I could have done. So I I grieve about it, but they're not going to go anywhere. So hopefully they'll sell later on if they don't sell as well this year. Fingers crossed for us all. Um, Yeah. I feel similarly. I've been looking forward to having this book come out. Um, I'm excited that it came out. Yesterday, um, I made a pizza to celebrate and I spelled lab nab out in green peppers on the pizza. And that was something a friend of mine suggested that I should celebrate somehow with some kind of food that I like uh, because I've been feeling like last late last week, even though I had a coronavirus test on Thursday, I was actually like in quite a good mood on Friday. Oh, it was my birthday last Friday. I don't know. I was in good mood. People's arcs or people's pre-ordered books were showing up and they were posting them online and it just felt really nice. And it was my birthday. So, and a friend of mine brought over a cake and yeah, I am very food oriented. So anyway, but this week I've been feeling really like emotionally flat for whatever reason. And so when my actual pub day rolled around, I just, I knew that I should be excited, but I didn't, I just didn't, don't feel anything this week at all. So it kind of didn't sort of crack through that weird armor of 2020. And it's hard to tell where those feelings are coming from exactly. I don't think they're, I don't think they're book related at all. And it's been really lovely to work with Arsenal Paul, who's one of your publishers as well. They've been doing an amazing job to sort of mitigate things as much as possible. But it is still, it, it is weird. We were talking about this a little bit earlier, but it is strange. I guess not for like TV people, because they're used to staring into like an unfeeling eye camera type thing. But I sort of uh, I'm not really exactly a stage performance type person, but I get a lot of energy from an audience when I read, um, for normal in real life events. And I find it really difficult to do everything on the computer because I don't sort of get that sense of the room and it's harder to read people's body language. Um, and you don't know how things are landing and like, how to adjust your reading to like accommodate for that. So, um, so I feel super grateful for everything I have been doing and will be doing, but it is sort of strange. And at the same time too, I've seen people talk about how either they live in rural areas or they have um, barriers to being able, being able to go to in real life events. 
And so they've been able to go to way more things this year. And that's super cool. And I actually had a question about that sort of emotional flatness because I felt the same way and I wasn't sure if it was depression (laughs) being, you know, just being a depressed person and like, you know, not being able to really be excited about stuff or if it was, you know, because of the, the sort of world that we were in. And I think it's, you know, obviously like once you start seeing like every now and again, it's like, I feel like these little pockets of like, oh my God, that's so awesome. Like even today, I was like looking through my book to try to figure out like what to read. I'm like, this is something that didn't exist, but now exists because I made it. And it's like, this is crazy. So there's, there are little moments that like sneak up on me, but like, I think it's hard for me to, to live up to sort of expectations of excitement and stuff. Cause it's just, I don't know. It's not an emotion that I I'm very good at. I overthink things too much. And I think that's also part of why it's so hard. It can be so hard to do the zoom readings. It's just like, I over, I, I start to over, I think too much when I don't know how it's going. Cause you can't feel like you're losing people or you can't even feel like that people are engaged and you start being like, is this boring? I don't know. And it's just, I don't know. It's as overthinkers, I assume I, I I'm guessing you're also an overthinker. Probably it's a little bit more trying. Yeah. Sometimes I feel like the goal of my life is uh, learning how to just be present instead of like meta present. Um, yeah. Uh, my, <laughs> my book ends on this <laughs> really optimistic note. Uh, personally, um, like, okay, I've arrived. I've been seeking some security my whole life and here it is. I feel so grateful. <laughs> Obviously I wrote that, uh, you know, probably the tail end of last year. So yeah. things changed. There was a last year? Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. So that's kind of funny. As soon, you know, yeah. not in March, but later on after I'd been processing and initially I wasn't thinking about myself really at all. But later after I was thinking about myself a little bit, I was like, <laughs> oh man, <laughs> play. I was going to play a little funny, but yeah. in some ways, uh, like I interviewed a bunch of people, including you for this book. And so those yeah. interviews, uh, well, are sort of condensed and then I switched them into third person and they're seated throughout the book. And a couple of the people who are in those interviews had also felt like they had gotten to these secure, finally places in their lives as millennials. And we're not, we're not like young, young anymore. <laughs> like most of us are in our, you know, well, older millennials, we're all in our thirties now. So uh, yeah. Um, but anyway, I know personally for a couple of those people, those secure places that they had reached their personal lives changed and now they're in totally different places. So that sort of yeah. sense of security in general is a, is a little bit of a fallacy anyway. Um, <laughs> well, don't spoil that. I want people to be uplifted by the book. Be like, Oh, all these people, all these secure places. Oh dear. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, nobody's secure in a pandemic. No, no. And I should say, I still have personally been very lucky. Um, So, and living in a rural area too, we have just had cases recently, but um, it's different than being in a city in that it's easier to keep your six feet of space. Um, We have forest trails around us. We have a yard um, as like lower middle income people. So that's pretty all things to be grateful for anyway we have done a really long intro should we introduce ourselves i don't know if we... we should introduce ourselves 
Um, <laughs> These voices you've been hearing for a while. <laughs> My name is Andrea Bennett. I'm the author of Like a Boy But Not a Boy, uh, essays on navigating life, mental health, and uh, parenthood outside the gender binary. Yeah, I'm John Elizabeth Stinsey. I'm the author of Vanishing Monuments, which also came out with Arsenal Book Press, and that's a novel. And then also this year, June Bat, which is a collection of poetry, which came out with Anansi. And I'm, yeah, in Kansas City right now. So America, yeah. <laughs> I'm in Powell River, BC. We're quite far away, um, although only like two time zones away. So yeah, it's still one more time zone to get to Ottawa. Okay, so should we read a few paragraphs from our, our work before we ask each other questions? Sure. Do you want to go first? Or do you want to sure, go? I'll go first. Okay. Uh, so I'm just going to read from Vanishing Monuments because I realize there's no paragraphs in Junebat, so I'm not going to read any poems, but this will just be from Vanishing Monuments. The only thing that is superimposed onto all of the memories in the living room of your memory palace is mother. She is standing in each of your memories, staring at them, at things she knows nothing of because you didn't tell her about any of them. She stands in each of the compositions, waiting, as if she were a still photograph sutured into the motion of life. But you think she is simply standing still. You think if you look at her hard, you could see her blink and, or breathe. But you can't bear to. She is just there, everywhere, waiting with a patience that only those with a sickness of the mind can muster waiting for the occurrence through which all murky things will clearly mark themselves knowable, waiting for an answer to life in the living movement of another. Mother stands perfectly exposed in your memories. Everywhere you look, she is perfectly clear and stark, even in the memories that are faded, old or boring things that were on the brink of being lost when you first built this palace, things you don't grab quite so desperately. Despite being everywhere, mother look, never looks at you as you move through the memory palace. She stands in the memories, not always in focus, waiting. You can't tell if she's judging your memories. You can't tell if she can see them at all, despite standing within them and staring. But you know she's there. You can hear the familiar silence of her. Thank you. I'm gonna read a section, uh, the first, the opening of Milk and Time, uh, which is an essay in the book um, which is going to be running and chatteling on, I think, October 6th. So it'll be out by the time uh, this podcast comes out. Um, it's running in like quite a condensed form. But anyway, if you want to, well, if you want to know what happens, and that, that's not exactly how essays work. But anyway, um, so Milk and Time, it's about expressing milk actually when I went back to work and was not feeding my kid directly. If I close my eyes, I can picture the bathroom at work in great detail. A refill container of watermelon soap on the top of the vanity, white walls and doors smudged by touch in their high traffic areas, a white coated wire cart containing spare toilet paper rolls and a reusable bag of clean hand towels. Inside the cabinet, relics of privacy, tampons, toothbrush, dental floss. The light switch is cockeyed, pointing northwest. The doorknob has a button lock, and I fear one day someone will walk in on me, sitting on the closed toilet seat, pumping milk. Sometimes voices bunch up outside the door, chatting in the public hallway, separated just barely from my private space. 
The bathroom light is connected to an overhead fan that rumbles as if it has croup. The bathroom fan obscures the noise of the pump's motor. My pumping routine proceeds by muscle memory. Unplug the mouse to turn in the hallway, plug in the extension cord, tamp it down with my foot to close the bathroom door. Connect the, pump, connect the pump's cord into the extension cord, connect the bottle heads to the bottles, connect the tubes to the bottles, turn on the power. The first time I pump, I've just arrived at work. At the beginning of the week, I turn my phone face down and place it on the side of the sink. I focus on my breathing to center myself. I read somewhere that looking at a picture of one's infant while pumping can help, to, can help increase milk production, so I conjure a recent memory. But by the end of the week, my daily commute having rung me of willpower. I sit, sit hunched over to keep the bottles in place as I throw, scroll through Twitter and answer emails. So, yeah, there nice. we go. Um, nice, I, I always forget how funny you are. And then you read it, it the, the humor comes out because your, your poetry collection, Canoodlers, is also very funny. And all your, it has, you've got sort of humorous twists and in your work that I, when I read stuff on the page, it's sort of like forget that it's like amusing, but like the, the sort of yeah. details that you use are really <laughs> have a, I mean, obviously like this, see this, this image is meant to be kind of like, yeah. I think amusing, of course. So yes. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. I'm glad that comes through. <laughs> At least when I read it out loud, I'm glad that you think noodlers is funny. I meant for that to happen. And I don't think that, I don't think it was often read that way. Which would, hmm. if it wasn't, then that was a failure on my part, but. I don't so know if that's true. I think people uh, are kind of overly serious when it comes to poetry. I think some poetry readers just don't realize that it can be funny. Like there's this uh, this poem by Allen Ginsberg called America. And there's a reading of his on, on YouTube of it. And everyone is so mad that the crowd is laughing. And it's like one of the funniest poems ever yeah. written. And it's like, what? what are you doing? Like, like everyone, like there's so many like angry comments like data. They're just, what are they laughing at? Ugh, they don't understand how serious this is. It's just like, this is like a riot. I mean, it's yeah. obviously deeply serious as well. It can be both things. It doesn't have to just be one. It's, I don't know. No, I think it's true. Um, I think it really depends on your personality and your life experiences and what you're bringing it to the collect, what you're bringing to what you're reading or listening to. So both having a tendency towards suppression, we might find humor in places that, you know, seem, might seem odd uh, to others and that's fine. Um, speaking of Ginsburg, actually that segues a little bit. I wasn't sure, I wasn't sure if you, I got the sense reading, Gin, reading Junebat that I could see bits of Ginsburg and there's one poem in particular and I'm gonna read a quote. Um, Oh, 13 ways of looking at a June bat. So the line is, or it's three lines, uh, four lines. A man and a woman are one. A man and a woman and a June bat are one. So the Ginsburg poem is called Love, theme, Love Poem on a Theme by Whitman. And its first line is, I'll go into the bedroom silently and lie down between the bridegroom and the bride. Um, and so I've, felt that sort of Ginsburg echo in particular in that poem. And um, uh, the, I always read the Ginsburg poem as, as the I being a kind of God or Jesus figure at the same time as it's kind of a ungendered orgy participant. 
And I, my question is, um, uh, you know, just about the ways that Junebot explores gender alongside sexuality. Um, there's the man and the woman and the Junebot who are one, and that's kind of, um, that can be read both ways. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, especially in the first half of the book of the first third too. There's a lot about like deleting dating apps and sort of pushing other people away, maybe in the way that like selfhood has to be established or understood before like love can be given and received. Uh, that's not quite a question, but that, <laughs> that's the constellation of things I was thinking about, uh, yeah. particularly when I came across that poem and felt that bit of Ginsburg mm. echo Interesting. there. I mean, it's funny that you mentioned that feels like Ginsburg because that is almost word for word a ripoff of Wallace Stevens's poem, 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. Like I literally just changed the, the word June bat, Blackbird to June Bat. But no, I mean, it's funny because I mean, they may both be riffing off of uh, Whitman. But I mean, in, in just speaking of Ginsburg, the, the poem uh, America, I'm putting my queer shoulder to the wheel is actually based off of, Amer or the title is Stolen the last line of America and sort of tweaked a little bit. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, that's a, I mean, that's just saying that, I mean, Ginsburg is someone that I like a lot and I don't know if I've read quite as many. I don't know if I'm familiar with the one that you've quoted from, but Ginsburg is cool, but yeah, no, I, that was something that I was definitely sort of playing with in terms of like sexuality and gender. Cause I mean, that's the kind of, it's not the thing that should be sort of like, interwoven but sort of when you're questioning yourself it's sort of there are these two things and you kind of trying to understand maybe both at the same time it doesn't really make sense I don't know because I was you know at that time I was like you know on like tinder and like checking out men and women and all of a sudden it was just like I I, I realized you know that it was very difficult for me to do that especially just in the way that the sort of male gaze really fucked me up in terms of like you know the way that like gay men sexualize people is kind of a very particular sort of masculine kind of coded way a lot of the time not all the time obviously but it was just like it was just bad it was not it was not recommended like that was sort of my first thing I was like maybe I should you know go out with a dude and it was just like just being on there it felt like caustic so it was you know I think that's something I'm sort of playing with throughout the the book and I think it's some of my other work like I have a long story coming out with the Malahat in like this next issue that is sort of about a similar experience of like this kind of queer friendship that doesn't that get kind of degrades it doesn't work because of this sort of similar dynamic of not being seen by this other person in the way that you want to be seen or sort of being sexualized or objectified for all these parts of yourself that you feel sort of least kin to so it's just you know it's a very I don't really know how to, I mean, it's one of those things that I'm just thinking about a lot. So it definitely comes up in that. And especially, and I think later on as well, and like uh, the evidence disproving the existence of a June bat, you know, the, that sort of stuff. So I don't know if I really can answer that question, but it is something that I was very much uh, thinking about and was present in my life at that time. Uh, when I reread June bat, like thinking about what, I would ask for this conversation. Um, like I think I had initially, when I first read it, thought about June Bat as a collection that you had written after you figured things out. And when I look back on my 
my first collection, Canoodlers, which came out, it came out before I was 30. And I think I read it, I wrote it like between the ages of 25 and 27 in the, in the thick of figuring things out, uh, gender wise and, and things of that nature. And, um, and so I feel like that book can captures like a particular moment in time for me. And sometimes when I look back at it, I feel like slightly embarrassed about certain things. Like I can really see why I wrote what I wrote. Um, anyway, hindsight is 2020. But then when I reread June Bad, I was like, oh no, actually, this is this is John figuring things out, just like in a more mature, smarter, <laughs> smarter way than I was. Um, but I guess I'm wondering if you feel like, did you, did you write the experience of figuring things out or did you write from a place of having figured it out and just like exploring the, you know, what you had learned about yourself and gender and sexuality? Yeah. I mean, I don't know how you feel about gender and all of that stuff, but I don't think there is a figuring out. I don't think there's a part where you're like, I am certain of everything now. I think that Junebat in many ways to me is, is sort of, you know, some of it was written in the thick of it. Some of it's written sort of in retrospect of being in the thick of it. So, you know, some of the poems are sort of set in that present and were written very much years later. Some of them I wrote like literally as I was like the, the like subway poem is like me. Like I was literally just writing that on in, in the moment that I was living it. So, you know, there's a sort of varying, but I, I, I don't really feel the sense of, you know, the Joombat, I think, is sort of the point of Joombat to me is sort of like coming to terms with the fact that this is this sort of forever process that you're in and that uncertainty is a part of identity more than certainty is like this. There's there's not this sort of fixed point that you can kind of like get to and be like, haha, I'm there. Like, I don't think I don't think you ever arrive exactly. And sort of Joombat, I I feel and that sort of towards myself is just like being getting more comfortable with the fact that you're sort of always going to be a question that's sort of how I how I see it I like that very much um and I someone wrote on Twitter somewhat recently um just about the idea of non-binary gender like uh critiquing the fact that when people talk about it you know they just draw a circle at the center of where like masculine and feminine arrive and uh and think about gender in sort of like a linear way and the person was like it actually can be just like a huge galaxy of things like why keep yourself to a line if you're going to be breaching the rules anyway um and I really admire that uh and I think it kind of speaks to the way that different people can non-binary is like a catch-all term and that's kind of what I love about it um I am personally just more boring in general, like I, yeah, I, not that I haven't changed and won't change over the course of my life, and that there won't be different modes of expression that I find comfortable or that I explore. Um, but yeah, I do have this, I guess, more of a sense of a fixed self and sense of the idea of like eventually coming out as non binary as something that was like finding the language that articulated something I had felt for a long time. Um, so, but I do think that that's a bit boring, like, <laughs> but I just think I am a bit of a boring person, which is, you know, that's fine. I, I love the galaxy and like the idea of always being a question 
or the idea of embracing uncertainty. I think that's probably part of it. I am very um, bad at embracing uncertainty. I would prefer, you know, the ground to be level. I don't like thinking about the universe or like the solar system or space mm. in general. I would never go on a submarine, yeah. um, you know. Uh, yeah. So it's a <laughs> bit of a. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it's kind of interesting. I mean, the idea of like, you're writing nonfiction, which seems to me, the thing about nonfiction that scares me the most is like, there is like some like belief in that I have that it has to have some sort of certainty, which I don't think that you really do. Like, I don't think that your essays feel like they're, they're no, landing they, in these like no. really certain places all yeah, the time. Yeah, no, that's a good question. So how do you, how um, do you navigate So that? I think uh, like particularly essays that deal with death, um, where I can't, I, there is no certainty. I'm a non-believer, so there's no certainty for someone like me. So you have to cheat the endings of those essays to feel like they have a narrative closure. Um, so, so in one case, I think I explicitly embrace uncertainty or say that it's something I'm going to have to learn how to live with and that the act of living is learning how to live with that. And I think that that's true. Um, and I can't remember how the, I can't remember how the other one ends. <laughs> I know I ended it somehow and came to an end, but no, you're right. Um, so I like, I like reading essays that are explorations and where the reader gets to think a little bit alongside with the writer. And there are different ways of doing that. You can make it explicit. You can kind of signpost what you're thinking about. You can make it a little more implicit in that, you know, using images and uh, repetitions or callbacks. Um, there are different ways of doing it. But uh, yeah, when I sat down to write these essays, I had been taking notes for like a year. And definitely when I wrote some of them, I just had to be in a particular frame of mind in order to be able to do that. And to get to a sort of vulnerable place that does exist within myself. Um, but yeah, I think there is sort of a bit of central tension between different aspects of my personality. The, as the aspect that would like everything to be like settled and secure and the aspect that is just constantly curious and worrying, <laughs> worrying to be honest about everything, but also just curious. I mean, I think that comes through. I mean, you know, there there seems to be a lot of like, I really like also the way that you blend like the personal with the historical with like the current political. Like this is all like ways that you can kind of have these sort of like pockets of fact almost, which sort of have a sort of certainty to them. Um, was that like a hard thing to balance in these essays or did it come kind of naturally? Like this sort of blending of like what's going on right now. I mean, you talk about Trump, you talk about, you know, the canlet stuff, you know, all this stuff that's still very much like an open wound or sort of like a current problem uh, as well as, you know, like Waco and all of these like cult yeah, things. Dairy farming. <laughs> so the way I got into nonfiction initially uh, was through third person, like more journalistic long form writing. And I really love researching things. So I think it's really important to do to do thorough research, but then it also probably does speak to that idea of wanting certainty about things. Um, so having come from like a long form nonfiction type of background, 
uh, being able to blend that with um, personal stuff for personal essays um, wasn't too difficult for me. Um, it is a personal pet peeve of mine when I see in an essay things that haven't been like blended or like um, like sort of like digested well enough uh, or the transitions are, are not, you know, transition-y enough or whatever. But I think that the thing that I wanted to avoid most was uh, like mapping myself narcissistically onto the universe. So I wanted to make sure that it came across that um, these were things that I was thinking through in the environment in which I was thinking through them. And you could think it through, think through them alongside me if you wanted to, and your experience might be different or your feelings might be different. That was kind of what I was hoping. And that was kind of my greatest worry about it. <laughs> but it, yeah, in retrospect, it is a little bit weird to be like, okay, let's have a Waco for a second. Oh, also like, have you ever really thought about where the milk comes from and why it's all like 2%? I wanted to ask you a question before I, before I, before it sort of slips. Um, when we were talking about non-binary identity, I was, it made me think again about, or it made me think about Alani Baum, um, who is the main character of Vanishing Monuments, as you know, but just to clarify that for people listening, uh, who also probably know. Um, so Alani Baum is non-binary. They're also kind of like a collection of people or fractured personas. There's, uh, and you can probably fill in a few more, but the ones that I remembered when I was writing this question were Alani, Al, Annie, and the running girl. Um, and those different people or personas float to the top of Alani's being as they navigate the world, depending on the day, the time, situation. And sometimes there's slippage between them. Um, and I was sort of wondering if you can talk a little bit about the relationship between non-binariness for Lanny and that sense of being sort of like a shuffling collection of people, um, which is also related to like memory. But I was wondering like, are, do you conceive of them of, of those two things, gender identity and the shuffling personas as like intrinsic for this character or are they kind of like two different things that meet in the same person? I think it's more of the latter. I didn't want to give the sense that like being non-binary, being gender fluid or whatever, like Alani is, means that you're like multiple personalities. Like that's not really what I was trying to, and I don't even think that they would necessarily even equate themselves to that. I think they just, I have this, you know, I have a very particular idea about how identity works and how it works differently, depending on like how you see yourself and how other people see you. And it's just like, I really wanted to, to stress the sort of instability of identity in this book. So, you know, all of these kind of different sort of facets, like there's sort of just a different face. Like it's sort of, I mean, some of it is like, you know, Al is like a, a more masculine version of Alani. And then, you know, Ali is like the more feminine version and there's all sorts of these things in between. But then there's also like this, the running girl who's just this sort of murky sense of just, I need to get out of here. Like this is like, the, the person that they become when they need to just run away. And then there's someone like Sophia, who's this like specific kind of invention that they make when they go to Germany uh, and just like make up someone else to be. And that's just, so there's a lot of like explicit, it's like some of it is more manufactured and some of it is just this uncertain like mood almost that they have, that they have, that they just decide to 
give a name because otherwise it is just like who they are is this mess of uncertainty. So I think in some ways it's trying to put some measure of control over the way that they kind of shift throughout their life. So it's related, I think, to gender, but it's not, it's, it goes beyond that in terms of like the sort of philosophical ideas that I was trying to play with. You know, I think about interiority in that novel. There's Alani's interiority. There's also their, they are like constantly seeking the interiority of their mother. Um, and I don't remember when it occurred to me, maybe like two thirds of the way through. I was like, oh, the mother, Alani is wearing their mother's camera all the time. And like the act of being behind the camera and sort of seeing what they, what their mother sees, that's kind of like an interesting attempt at achieving a different kind of interiority because Alani's mother is so silent and, and withdrawn for, uh, because of her depression and, and uh, throughout the book. I have seen on Instagram, you also have that, that camera and uh, the idea of photography and all of the complications of photography uh, play a huge role in the novel. I was wondering how you settled upon the Leica as like a, hmm, well, it's almost like another character in the book, but at least like a, something that recurs and is important. Yeah, I mean, I just, you know, I wanted Alani's mother to be a photographer and there's all sorts of timing issues, timing reasons for why the Leica and that particular Leica makes sense to me just in terms of like when she would have been growing up in Germany. I mean, it's, it's a big deal of a camera back then even. So it's a pretty, it's a pretty snazzy little thing for for her to have. So, you know, part of it is just, you know, in terms of where she comes from, you know, it makes sense as like, if you're going to have one camera and make it this like, you know, pretty snazzy, I mean, not anymore. I mean, it's a pain in the ass to use these days compared to anything modern, but uh, I think some of it was definitely that. And it was just, you know, I wanted to, I mean, the Leica stands in for so many things. Like it stands in kind of for this sort of point of view of the mother and Alani sort of steals it in some ways to, I think, take some part of, their mother with her with them when they when they leave Winnipeg like that's like the one thing they do and they just steal this camera that is their mother's favorite camera and that you know has always been the camera that they've sort of looked at Alani through as well so in some sense it is kind of a surrogate I think to sort of the the best parts of their mother maybe I don't know it's just some it's a it's it, it contains a lot of I think different things to it but it sort of it is some sense of like this mother's eye that is still kind of looking at Alani because Alani does a lot of like self-portraiture sort of stuff so you know and yeah so it's just all sorts of weird baggage that that has um did you have your like a before you wrote the novel or did you no. get it Okay. <laughs> I, I was like my reward for writing it. I was like, I'm going to buy myself this little thing. It's not that, you know, it was like 500 bucks or something these days. It's not, which is, you know, not no money, but, you know, it's not as like what it would have been back in the day, you know, it's quite the feat of engineering in 1930s. But uh, yeah, I got it sort of as a reward and because I just wanted to own it to sort of like, you know, be like, this is the one, this is the exact camera Alani has. This is the, this is the artifact. So I don't know. It's just sort of a fun thing to do. I do a lot of 
stuff with that. When I, when I, when I edit, when I write stuff, I get way too into like researching details. And then I just want these things. Like there's a, there's an, op- a fire opal in my new novel, the novel that I'm trying to sell soon. And, and that's the stone I got from my wedding ring. So, oh, cool. So, yeah. Nice. Oh yeah. You got married this year too. Yeah. Just in two months, two months ago today. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm kind of curious about how you like the difference because you also write poetry, you know, you're a canoodlers, you've, you know, published poetry since then that, you know, is hopefully going to be another collection in the, in the years to come. But uh, what's the, what's the difference in the, in the process of like, how do you, how do you know something's a poem and how do you know something's an essay? And then do you write them at the same time or do you kind of do one then you have to like transition in order to be able to do the other so I do write about some of the same things. Um, there are total overlaps between the poetry collection that I am working on that uh, hopefully is going to come out. Um, well, I'm hoping it'll come out in 2023 or sooner. So, but for me, like essays are the thing that I have to make myself render something explicitly and have to articulate exactly like how I'm thinking about something and how I'm feeling about something. Poetry is what I get to write when I can express it in a way that's not explicit and that actually doesn't come from like the word part of my brain. It's coming from like a different part of my brain entirely. That is more about kind of, um, it's like more of the image side actually, more of the sort of um, like weird connections between things that uh, I need to feel rather than articulate. Um, and obviously they're both, that comes out in words also, but um, but I don't expect of myself or of anyone else's poetry to to um, to make the same to make sense in the same way. I was going to say to make the same kind of sense, but that's not true. I expect them to make sense in a different way. Um, yeah, I think you can use those powers for evil too, because you can totally use them to become like a marketing person. Um, because everyone has these like sort of associations and anyway, um, but yeah, so they do cover the, some of the same ground, but doing very, very different things. Yeah. It feels like you have more room to be evocative in poetry and to sort of give a sense of something rather than, or give it, or give a shape for someone to think it's for someone to think through something with, but rather than like with an essay, I I mean, that's the thing I think I feel the most insecure about is that I have to say something. And I'm like, I don't know that I am, you know, I don't, I don't know that I feel strongly enough about anything to be able to say anything. I don't know. I mean, obviously I've written essays and nonfiction and it hasn't been like a complete disaster, but I find it to be such a different and obscene process. I don't know. It feels so unnatural. <laughs> yeah, fair. Um, I'm not good at writing fiction. Yeah, I'm not good at writing fiction. I always sort of fail at it. I'll have an idea and then I can never really see it through. I've copy edited a lot of fiction and what you were saying about the, the Leica and like getting really into things. I find that about copy editing because I start making this like Rubik's cube to sort of make sure I'm understanding how the pieces come together, which is totally different than the experience of like reading a novel when you are, should not trying to be like thinking about how it comes together and like it's structural inner workings and all that kind of stuff. Um, even when you're like analyzing something, um, 
as a reader to talk about it, uh, like to review it or or talk about it in class or whatever. That's also different. Like copy editing, you're really sort of like shifting the little color blocks around. Um, and in, and when I'm doing that, I get super obsessed with the world. Um, yeah, and sort of pick up shiny rocks as I go. Um, but yeah, I just don't, for whatever reason, I, I can't do it. I haven't been able to do it yet for my own fiction. So I write a lot of failed fiction and then I don't stick with it actually. And it's like, yeah, well, that, let's just set that aside. I'm not gonna worry about that. Yeah, that's what I sort of feel with the nonfictions. I mean, I have a like book of nonfiction that I'm like slowly building, it seems like, but I, every time I think about working on it, I'm like, it's just like the worst way that I work. Like, I, why wouldn't I just go write one of my novels instead? I don't know. It's so difficult, but it's, it's, it's interesting because I think like the thing about like you were talking about in terms of like thinking, like that's what I, what I try to also, I think, do with my nonfiction. And also I think what makes the most sort of accomplished poem as well, like in terms of like a lyric poem is like where you can sort of, you're sort of thinking along with the poem and it doesn't feel like it's just sort of contrived sort of structure to to get you a th- to a thought. Like it feels like you're in the thick of it with it. Uh, I think that's the the most exciting. And it's, it's the most exciting thing with nonfiction as well. And what I like about uh, your book so much is just, you know, thinking alongside of all these things and just not... F- and I don't, and I know, and I personally like that it doesn't feel like it has always has these like deep conclusions because it's just like, you know, this is just, rem- this is life, you know, a lot of times you don't know how things are going to go. Certainty is a, a myth most of the time anyways. So I, I really appreciate that sort of opening open space that you, that you provide. I want to ask you a question about the act of writing poetry for you the act of writing poetry for me is kind of like almost like an iceberg like the tip is the writing part like the part that's above the surface and then I've just been like living with the larger part of it for like a long time like digesting it so it may only take me I don't know 17 minutes to write my first draft um but then I've been like sitting with it for a long time in a sense like writing it in my head so <laughs> June Bet, I think is a it's a collection that is able to meditate on a changing idea, but it's central idea throughout the whole collection in a way that is that kind of like marries the lyrical and like the project poem book or conceptual poem book. And so process-wise, I was wondering how you did that. <laughs> How did you do that? What was it like for you? That's interesting. I mean, I think that I'm very much the same as you. It seems like the way that I write. I, I also find it baffling that it takes people all of this work to write a poem when it's like whenever. I mean, I at this point I write two poems a year. I mean, like it's just like depends on the on the day. Like I'm very much I have to be in the poetry brain in order to really do it. Um, but, you know, it's uh, oftentimes, yeah, it's just like a line shows up and I'm just like, there's a poem. And then I, I, I release the poem and that that is the thing that I have. And I mean, with this book, there was a little bit of uh, imagining of like trying to. Or I, I didn't even think that it was really necessarily that research. I just like came up with this. I just wanted to come up with a thing that I could create in this book that wouldn't because I just didn't like any of the terms or anything. I was like, I don't want to do. I don't want to 
talk about that because it doesn't feel like I have like ownership of that. So I was like, I want to make up something because it's like, those are too clear cut. They have their own definitions. I don't think that's helpful for me. So I was just like, make up this thing. And I, there's this word that I'd saved that I'd made up like years ago. And it was like June bat. I was like, all right, I'll just take that and, and run with that. And I think a lot of the, the poems that I did were more just like, I want to write a poem about like I just started writing a poem and the June bat maybe slipped its way in. Like, I don't think there was really very many where I was maybe intentionally like researching stuff aside from maybe the parts where I rip off like Wall Stevens, you know, reading 13 ways of looking at a blackbird and figuring out how to, how to use that structure and use his words against him or like you just be able to play with stuff like that. Like, I think there's some where I maybe was a little bit more intentional and a little bit more like, filling it it was sort of like mad lib sometimes those ones where i was kind of like borrowing sentence structures and changing things as well but so there there was some sense of of that but i think usually i mean for the most part it's just i have an idea and then i have a line and then the rest of the poem comes from that i mean i i it rarely goes that i have an idea and i can write a poem like anytime i do that it sounds it just turns out terribly like i tried to write one earlier this year i had this great like thing that I wanted to write a poem about and I just couldn't like it was just like pulling teeth and it was so contrived and then I was like a week later I was like taking a walk in the cemetery during a pandemic and there was all these people walking around and I had this sort of line pop into my head and (laughs) had to like get it down before it slipped away yeah I feel that very much uh I have I have written a lot of poems drafts the first like bits of poems in the notes section of my phone for sure um particularly the last like year and a half um, like particularly since March and whenever the moment strikes you just kind of have to take it so Stevens and Ginsburg are there any are they the two poets you like to rip off from <laughs> you I'm using your words are are there other poets who um whose like style or uh like are there other poets that you were reading as you were writing uh, I mean there must have been a bunch that I was reading just because when I'm writing poetry I tend to be reading it more and I wouldn't even say that Stevens is someone that I read that much. Like I've read maybe twice as many poems as I've ripped off from him. So he was just like, mostly I started with 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird because that's a poem that confounded me and upset me in grad school. I was like, I hate this poem because it's so confusing. And then when I was writing this thing about the Jumba, I was like, that seems like an interesting poem to sort of play off of because it's sort of about not, I like it doesn't, it seems to be slipping away from like, you knowing what the hell that poem is trying to do with this blackbird. Like, what what are we trying to see? So it felt like a, a useful strategy for that. And then I just, you know, Anecdote of the Jar is one that I like a lot and I liked in, in college. So it was an easy one to steal. And then I, once I'd done it a few times, I sort of spelunked his work a little bit more. And, and Ginsburg is someone who I think is more in my bones. I think like earlier on, like I was really influenced, I suppose, by like Howell and, uh, supermarket in California, all of these sort of very early Ginsburg sort of stuff or America, you know? So, but someone who I think explicitly I was thinking about was uh, James Schuyler, who was very important to me at the time, just in the way that he kind of like has these sort of meandering lyrical voice, but is also like really sharp. Like he was part of the sort of New York school, but he was, he was less obnoxious than Frank O'Hara. I like Frank O'Hara a bit, but he's more hit or miss with me, but I think also James Scott was more moody and less uses less exclamation points and meditative in a way that I, that I felt, I feel very akin to his work. And 
it's just it's the, the way that it moves so beautifully and and sort of in jams really kind of confusingly at times i just i think this this sort of rhythms of him definitely sort of influenced some of the more lyrical aspects of this book and there are probably many other people that i have read you know a lot of great trans poets and stuff of course you know joshua jennifer espinoza all those you know everyone who i've read has been deeply influential just in terms of you know more of me meanness but i can't i can't quite conceive of who else i mean were you thinking about any particular essayists while writing like a boy in terms of like essay collections uh Alexander Chi's How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. I love that collection so much in so many different ways. Um, uh, yeah, the, the sort of like thoughtful candor, like you're getting details because they're important to the story that needs to be told. But um, he's sort of, I don't know. Yeah, I love that collection so much. Um, so uh, Ivan Coyote's uh, Tomboy Survival Guide and uh, just S. Bear Bergman's like entire, oh God, <laughs> saying that word, uh, saying words out loud is terrifying. Um, I have other people in my acknowledgements, but yeah, like similarly to you, so many people who I've read like influence my work in ways that aren't necessary that are sometimes explicit and sometimes more often not super explicit um so uh the other i, I was reading alicia elliott's um a mind spread out on the ground and thomas page mcbee's man alive also um and then i really love andrew solomon's writing on uh, mental illness and mental health and Esme Wei-Jung Wang's uh, writing on the same. And I cite her explicitly. I don't think I cite Solomon. And then the Canlet, like, you know, the Canlet essay pulls from a lot, a lot of different sources. It was really important for me to read as deeply as I could. There's a bunch of stuff about bike mechanics in this uh, essay collection. And so I read, I reread uh, the big blue book of bicycle mechanics. And that was like a total source for me. Um, and I love Calvin Jones who wrote that book. He's so great at explaining how to do bicycle mechanics. So I'd be lying if I said that wasn't also like an influence. And then I also thank my friend Emilia Anosapulvida who was my mentor as I learned how to be a bike mechanic. So anyway, I guess we should say thank you. Thank you to everyone who listened to this and thanks to the Ottawa Writers Festival for having us, it's been fun. Yeah, no, it's nice to catch up. Was John Elizabeth Stinzi and Andrea Bennett. I want to thank you for supporting authors and booksellers through these difficult times. Our official bookseller is Perfect Books on Elgin Street, and wherever you are right now, there's an independent bookseller nearby who would be more than happy to sell you some great books. Please take a moment to rate and review the podcast, and don't hesitate to recommend it to a friend. If you enjoy the podcast or any of our virtual programming, please consider making a charitable donation. Your financial support will allow us to continue to bring you the world's most interesting authors and thinkers. Join us on Friday for the next installment of Writers' Festival Radio, a poetry spotlight on Arsenal Pub Press, hosted by Nina Jane Drysdeck, featuring Sachiko Murakami and Jillian Christmas. This podcast is produced by Aaron Flynn, original music and sound engineering by Mike Dubé, Kira Harris is our program director, and I'm your host, Sean Wilson. Thank you 
for listening. 